Blog Talk Radio. Buy it, please. with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I will provide you with guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. And so now let's move behind the scenes here at Movie Beat. Uh, first off, my guest today is Mr. Christopher Lockhart. He is the story editor at William Morris Endeavor, one of the world's largest entertainment agencies. And he'll be talking today. We're going to talk about producing. He's produced uh, a couple of feature films and a documentary film. Uh, we've talked to him a couple times before on Movie Beat. If you haven't listened to his other interviews, you don't need to listen to them in order today in order to make sense of what's going on. But I suggest you go back and hear his other interviews. The chat room is open. So join us in the chat room. I had a little trouble getting on today, so if you do, just keep trying and, and you'll get in. I want to welcome the people who are showing up right now, Oxy Blues, Vicky and Grease, uh, Dee Bullis, uh, and there's other guests whose uh, names don't show up. Movie Angel is here. Uh, thanks so much for showing up. Uh, Movie Beat is really a resource for you. That's why I connect you with the people that are uh, professionals who are making it happen. You can subscribe to the official Rex Sykes Movie Beat uh, site, which is rexsykes.com. That's my name. I'm your host. It's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S.com. And uh, there's an RSS feed right there at the welcome page. And uh, the interviews blog is where you'll go and listen to all the archived interviews. i got to tell you, we've had some great guests uh, in recent past. I'm going to name some of them right now. Uh, the other day we had uh, Colin Ferguson. He's a star of sci-fi's uh, hit series, Eureka. Uh, he plays Sheriff Jack Carter, and he, he's been uh, our, our recent guest. Uh, Christopher Lockhart has been up a couple of times before, as I, as I mentioned. John Gaspard has been our guest. He's um, uh, an author and a filmmaker. You want to go back and listen to each of these people. Uh, Straw Wiseman's a producer who we've had on the show. Uh, he will be returning at some point. Roberta Run- Monroe, who wrote uh, How Not to Make a Short Film, uh, I'm mean, sorry, How Not to Make Short Movies coming up. Uh, is, I apologize. Has been here before a couple of times. Uh, great interviews. Michael Pare, the actor, has been here. Uh, we've got so many great guests. There's over 180 hours of fantastic interviews with professional filmmakers, on-camera talent, uh, that you're going to want to go back and check into each and every one of them. And also, they are archived at iTunes as podcasts. So you can get them from RexSykes.com. You can get them from, your, from where you're listening right now, or you can go to the iTunes store and get them as the podcast. Download them to your favorite uh, electronic device and, um, and rock and roll. Uh, so we have um, uh, Welcome Vampire Mob and, and, and other guests who are here with us today. Uh, what you can do for us, what you can do for my guest and for me, is right now, wherever you are, go ahead, reach out to someone. Um, call someone, tweet someone, Facebook, and MySpace, email, or yell, shout across the room to them sitting in the chair and go, hey, come here, listen to this interview. Today we've got Christopher Lockhart on, and he's going to be talking about producing movies. Uh, but reach out. Uh, during the show, you can retweet comments that my guest or I make uh, as another way of enticing other people who are out there in Twitterland to to listen in, uh, you can leave comments about the show in the comment section when you're listening live. You can rate and review the podcast. Um, those are means that you have to reach out and actually capture uh, someone else's attention. Facebook, MySpace, um, because when you do that, when you repost about my guest, uh, it extends our reach and it allows this valuable information to. Um, to be made available to others, because this is really a nuts and bolts show, a how-to show. Uh, we pull back the curtain, the veil, and expose the inner workings of the Hollywood system of making movies and TV, uh, what to do, what not to do, uh, so that so that you can benefit and get your projects made smarter, faster, and more efficiently. All right, so without any further ado, I want to uh, introduce Christopher again. He's a Hollywood executive teacher and producer, and for a dozen years he's worked as a story editor at ICM and William Morris Agency, currently 
the newly formed William Morris Endeavor. And during his tenure, he's worked with the legendary talent agent, Ed Lamato, who sadly recently passed away. And he's been helping to find film projects for actors such as Denzel Washington, Mel Gibson, Steve Martin, Richard Gere, Michelle Pfeiffer, Liam Neeson, uh, Claire Danes, and many others. He's consulted on hundreds of screenplays with studio executive producers and writers from around the world. He estimates that he has read over 30,000 screenplays. And as a producer, Chris set up Rhinestone Alibi at Paramount with Julie Richardson. Uh, Julie's been a guest on our show a couple of times. She's fantastic. And he produced The Collector, uh, co-produced it with Julie, which was released nationwide in the summer of 2009. And he is one of the producers on the sequel, which is uh, uh, Moving Ahead. Uh, we'll talk about that. And he is the writer-producer of the feature-length documentary called Most Valuable Players, which ran in New York City and L.A. in the summer of 2010 as part of the prestigious DocuWeeks and will make his festival premiere in October at the, uh, I believe the 10th of October, at the Mill Valley Film Festival in California. We talked about that before. We're going to talk to, about that again, but let me bring Chris on right now. How you doing, Chris? Ta-da! Good morning. <laughs> You're there. Well, welcome. Uh, it's good to have you here again. Uh, as I have said, uh, the uh, interviews, the discussions that we've had have been so well received and they are so chock full of really critical uh, screenwriting and career advancing information uh, that I just want to thank you again right now before we even get going um, any further because uh, you have been a most valuable guest and um, we really appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. So how you been since uh, a week ago, since the last time we talked? Uh, still alive. I'm surviving. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, so, well, we, I, you know, I had uh, mentioned that we talked about screenwriting before, and uh, we're going to move into the area of producing now. And you have produced feature films and documentaries. Uh, maybe we should start off by uh, talking about uh, producers' responsibilities, so, because in some cases a producer writes their own show, in another case they go find their own show, in another case they're brought on to a show. Um, you know, and, and, and how a documentary and a feature film are going to differ. Now, I've thrown a lot at you, but uh, you, you take it however you want to uh, to take it. Or talk about anything you wish to talk about and just ignore me. Well, you know, I think, I think uh, a producer's responsibility is to bring the project to life. And uh, there's different producers uh, on a show, and, and they all might have different responsibilities. Some might look after the money. Others might be more um, involved with the creative side. But ultimately, the goal of all producers is to bring the project to life. It's, it's, it's to produce. And um, there's often a lot of producers on a project, and uh, that can perhaps make things a little more difficult. Uh, the documentary, there were only two of us. That made things a lot easier. Uh, I think the difference between uh, producing a feature film and a documentary, or at the very least a studio film, because the, the Collector was actually produced under the auspices of the Weinsteins. It was made for Dimension. It eventually wasn't released that way, but uh, it was a studio film uh, to start. And you know, that involves a much more arduous process as opposed to an independent film like a documentary where it's just two people calling the shots and we don't really have to... Uh, clear things with people or get a rubber stamp from, you know, a whole list of folks along the way, which really, I think, makes things much more complicated and, of course, can muddy the vision along the way. But um, it's it's been fun all the way around, you know, and I feel like I've been very lucky given the fact that uh, I have a full-time job at the agency to still be able to do this as well. And uh, as you pointed out, we're doing a sequel to The Collector called The Collection. And that's actually uh -huh. being, that's, that's being cast as we speak. Wow, wow. And um, from that phase, let's, let's, let's just take it from there. From casting, I mean, how far till shooting? What, what, what's your projected schedule? Well, uh, we're supposed to start uh, in November. So, uh, but, you know, casting, especially on uh, a smaller budget, <clears throat> uh, casting can be a little bit more difficult because 
Obviously, you always want the biggest and the best, but in the end, you can probably only get what you can afford. And so that process can take a little bit longer than expected as you sort of go through the list of people that you want, and then maybe you get a couple of passes and you have to sort of regroup. And uh, But uh, we went through it the first time, and uh, we ended up with a, uh, a great actor named Josh Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, who yeah, starred indeed. in the collection. He's a really good actor, and uh, he really sort of is the heart and soul of that film. And um, And he's coming back. He's coming back for the collection, so we're excited about that. That's awesome. Now, he did, he was on Dirt, correct? He was. He was on Dirt, and um, he will now be co-starring in, I think it's called An Ordinary Family, the Michael Chiklis oh, show right. on ABC. And he's been in quite a few uh, films. He was in Benjamin Button. He was in, um, oh, the, the film with Jamie Foxx. Uh, uh, I can't think what it was called, but uh, I saw it on HBO, and he, he was uh, very good in it. Oh, so, he's an excellent, uh, excellent actor, and he was yeah. great. He was great in the Collector, and I keep telling you and Julie that you are a couple of sick puppies for that movie. But I mean, it is a grisly. Blame, grisly blame, Mar- blame Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton. They're the uh, <laughs> right. co-writers, and Marcus directed it. He made his feature film, directing debut. Many people remember them from the the third and final project, Greenlight TV series. They won that um, contest that was staged by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck with their uh, horror screenplay called Feast, which then went on to uh, give uh, birth to two more sequels. And and then they... And then they picked up the Saw franchise, and they did, I think, Saw 4, 5, 6, and 7. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're sort of the go-to guys when it comes to horror in town right now. They have their fingers in almost uh, every project, even if they're not credited. It always seems to go by their desks. And uh, But they're great guys, and Marcus is He's just one of the most lovable people on the planet. I mean, absolutely lovable. So it's so hard to imagine when you see something like, because it's it's like if I were a woman, I wouldn't I wouldn't think twice about bringing him home to meet my mother. Uh-huh. You know something? I I'd bring him home to meet my mother regardless. <laughs> I mean, he he's such a great guy, but what? But don't a, let him tell any horror stories. Yeah, what a sick man! A sick uh-huh. sick man. Wow! Wow! Well, that's that, no, that's very cool, and and uh, the collector really was, you know, it, it was a standout. But 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 it, but he had a, a really fairly small cast. It does, yeah. You, you know, it's 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 really a contained horror film, and and it it just has a few core people, those that can be sliced, diced, and julienned through the film, and and, uh, and Josh most certainly gets his butt kicked through the Again. majority of the film. Would, um, uh, uh, will the collection be similar in that vein? I mean, uh, tight. It will. Cast. It will. It's a little bit bigger. The story's opened up a little bit more, but it still stays true to uh, the first film in that respect. And we learn a little bit more. One of the the biggest criticisms about the film was the fact that there's no backstory. On the collector, he he mm-hmm. just he just remains sort of, you know a masked uh, crazy man, but but a cipher, and a lot of people didn't like that. I remember my mother was mm. like, "Well, I don't understand, you know, why does he do this?" and and I was like, "Well, that was that was the idea. The writers just didn't." want you to know anything about him. They wanted him to be completely anonymous because they felt he was much more frightening that way. Uh, and uh, some people understood that philosophy, others didn't. But uh, so we learned a little bit more about him this time around. Wow, that's fascinating. I, when I watched it, I um, I don't be- remember that being a concern, and it is for me oftentimes. But the movie was so, I guess, intense otherwise that I just kept going, "Wow, uh, this is this is truly sick." <laughs> You know, this is really horrific. This is scary. This is, you know, I mean, and right. so, so. I mean, well, you know, what was what was interesting was that part of the writer's philosophy was that when when you know a little bit of the killer's backstory, you can often make him uh, empathetic or sympathetic. Yeah. At least. yeah. And um, 
and I agree with that actually. Uh, so uh, I really, I really supported that vision. Um, the Weinstein's, when we were developing it, they they were really they really wanted to see more of a backstory, and so we sort of appeased them a little bit by creating that credit sequence where you see it's very sort of murky, but you sort of get an idea as to maybe a little bit of what he's doing and uh, just sort of in very quick imagery, but um, but the boys stayed true to their vision in. In, in hindsight, I think when when I watch the film, I think a reason why so many people want to know more about the collector is because he's so complicated. I remember while we were developing this, Patrick would always reference the original Halloween movie and and, mm-hmm. and say, you know, we, we we really don't know anything about Michael Myers, with the exception that you know he's really just a killing machine, or as somebody right. said the other day, a shark, and. Um, and that's true where, where the collector is much more complicated. He's, he's, he's not just sort of randomly killing people like a robot. He is much, he's much more methodical. He creates traps. So I think the audience has so many questions about the killer, and they're not answered. And uh, so I think that can frustrate people. So as a writer, as a creator, I think you always have to sort of stop and understand what it is that you're doing. And the boys understood it. They got it. That was their vision. Their vision was to introduce these questions but not answer them. And some people loved that approach and thought it was much more frightening. Uh, the Variety Review that we got pinpointed that and specifically said that we know nothing about this guy and it makes him that much more frightening, where other people just would completely disagree. So, but you, you, you can't please everybody. Well, if I had to put two cents in, I think in in real life, when when and I hate to, to make that crossover, but in real life, when when something tragic happens, we, you know, it, it, like a serial killer, we don't know the backstory of this person, and it is terrifying, right? You know, so but and I don't remember, you know, I mean, I remember the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I don't really remember any backstory. I don't recall if there was a backstory. I mean, it seems like that in this in the in the seventies. And maybe even before that, there were a lot of stories that that didn't, you know, they just got, it was like Charles Bronson movie. Somebody comes out of nowhere and goes into nowhere where you really knew nothing about them, that you just caught this slice of life in which they interacted. And and do you think this has anything to do with the the era we live in now, that people want more backstory or something that, I mean, because there's always been backstory in different cases, but. Yeah, uh, you know, nowadays we can get all the information that we want about anything. Uh, we can just go online and and we can read up a- anything about anybody, um, as opposed to the early 70s that you bring up. Uh, had to work a little bit harder to get information, perhaps. And 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 there's no denying that the collector harkens back to those films of the early 70s. It, it even has that grainy look yeah. to it. You know, that was really sort of what they were going for. That was really. Um, Mr. Dunstan's vision there, and uh, Brandon Cox, the um, the DP, you know, they really had a very a very strong vision about how the film was to look and um, what they were trying to capture. So they really did stay true to those films of that time period, and so I think that fans of of those kind of films really love the collector. And, you know, we have a Facebook page and and um, and we've got a lot of fans, and they chime in, especially since the movie was released on DVD. And that, actually, this summer, this past summer, it was released in Europe, and it really has a lot of fans. And you know, despite the the blood and guts and the gore, uh, people love it. I often meet people who say it wasn't gory enough. Oh, really? Wow! I'm like, wow! I believe okay. it. <laughs> I mean, I believe people say it, but wow! Yeah. Wow. Um, well, so can you talk a little bit about how it came to life, how you were involved, and, and how you know how you bring a movie like that to life, especially because given that this is not uh, an indie film in that in that regard. I think a lot of projects come together because of who you know. People have a, a network of friends and family uh, here, and that's who we like to work with. And uh, I knew Patrick. 
Melton, one of the writers, because he had been my intern at uh, ICM many oh, wow. years ago. I went to, and, and spoke at um, LMU, Loyola Marymount University, where he was a graduate student. And the following day, he calls me. I had not met him the night before. And he says, hey, you know, I'd like to be an intern. And I was like, great, you can come and read scripts for me. And he was a terrific kid. And he came out and he, uh, he interned for me for at least six or seven months. And then he said, you know, I really need a job. So we eventually transitioned him and he ended up being um, a reader for ICL, reading all scripts and, and doing coverages. And he did that for quite a while until he ended up winning Project Greenlight. And then sort of flash forward, he pitched me this idea of the collector that he and Marcus had put together. And I just, I love the irony of it. I love the idea of a burglar who had broken into a house to steal something and he stumbles upon a, an, an even greater and more horrific crime in progress. And now he's trapped in the house. And so the thief who broke in needs to try to break out. And then there's this whole sort of moral dilemma about should he help those that uh, are in need. And I, I just thought it was really interesting. And so I called Julie Richardson, who produced Collateral. She's a friend and a partner of mine. And I said, you know, Julie, you should hear this pitch. I'd always wanted her to meet the boys, and it just had never happened. So finally we all met at the newsroom in Beverly Hills, and they pitched it to her, and uh, I, I just loved it. And then Julie was actually driving, so she drove me back, and I said, we need to get involved with this. And she was like, oh, I hate horror movies, and, and she does. She doesn't like horror movies. In fact, I don't think she's ever seen The Collector from beginning to end. She oh, always, wow. has, always has her hands over her face. And uh, so, but eventually... Um, um, I um, introduced the boys to Mike Gossard, who was working for Fortress, and uh, Patrick Gazzotti and uh, Brett Forbes, and then they uh, and then they took on the project and funded the development of it. We uh, wrote a script, and then Marcus wanted to direct the film, and everybody was like, "No, you've never directed before." But so we gave him some money, and he went out, and he shot an eight-minute sizzle reel, basically huh. an extended trailer, and he did an amazing job. And then along with the script and the sizzle reel, we actually had quite a few interested parties. Screen Gems wanted it, but in the end, uh, we went with Dimension. And then uh, we developed the script more, and we went into production. And uh, the problem was, of course, is that in the end, Dimension was having some financial problems. They didn't have any money for P&A because they had to put it into nine with Daniel Day-Lewis and Quentin Tarantino's uh, Inglorious Bastards. And so they were just going to put it right to DVD. But they liked us. They liked the film. And they said, look, you know, if you can find a buyer for this film, then uh, good luck. And, you know, go do it. And so Mickey Lydell steps up, buys the film, makes a few changes, and it gets released in uh, July of 2009, about 1,300 theaters. Wow. Wow. Amazing. So, so he directed his first feature. He did. That is amazing. Is he going to be the director on the second? He is. Wow, what a career. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he's... he's uh, and what's great is that he, he just... He is so excited... He really has a lot of good ideas, and, um, and he, he, he has the ability to uh, excite everybody who works with him. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, yeah. that, really, that is truly cool. Um, you know what I'd like to do? I mean, I, I don't want to interrupt now, but in about five minutes, I'd have to take a break anyway. So let me take the break now, and let me just take that break by saying that we've got comments like, thank you, Christopher, for coming on week after week to give us so much great information. It's really appreciated. Uh, thanks for the great interviews, Grax. Christopher's amazing. More and more information to share. Awesome. Agreed. Christopher's awesome. I concur. I mean, so so there, you, <laughs> people in the chat room are really thrilled that you're here and that you share what you share. Uh, and I am as as well, obviously. So uh, thank you, Christopher. 
I'm going to take just a short break and and let the listeners know that they're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official website is Rex Sykes, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. All of the interviews are stored right here where you're listening live. They're also available at the interviews blog at RexSykes.com, and they are available as podcasts from the iTunes store. Please go ahead and send your friends and uh, your industry connections uh, and anyone you know to any of the archives to go back and listen to uh, over 180 hours of professional uh, filmmakers and TV makers and content providers um, share their expertise with you. We've had great interviews. Uh, You don't want to miss a single one. And uh, we've got some great interviews coming up, and I'd like to list some of those uh, right now. The next persons coming up, or the next people coming up, are going to be Jane Jenkins and uh, Janet Hershenson, and they are uh, incredible casting directors. They've been casting for about 30 years. If you can think of the top 100 movies, they've probably done about 50 of them. They started with Zoetrope and, and Francis Ford Copley, uh, Coppola, and um, and they're going to be here next. Uh, they've got a book out that we're going to talk about tomorrow, too, when they're on the air, and you'll have to uh, tune in and listen to that. Mitch Apley is a uh, documentary filmmaker. He will be coming up then after that. Douglas Dave Stewart is a screenwriter and director. He will be right then after that. And on October 1st, and the only reason I point out the date is because it's one of those days that I get to sit and reminisce with a co-star of mine from a movie called Massacre at Central High, the cult classic directed by Renee Dalder and Daryl Murray, the star of the movie, and I will be talking about that film made so long ago, uh, but so many fans and so many friends out there have wanted it, so we're doing a, a reminiscent show. And then Film Courage, David Brannon and Karen Warden are coming up. Eduardo Ballerini, who's in uh, Boardwalk Empire, will be joining us. Rick Overton, comedian and actor, he's in Dinner for Schmucks. Uh, Diane Nabatov, producer, and just a whole host of others are coming down the pike. So please tune in, please tweet, please spread the the word, and and certainly, most importantly, please join us. And uh, we're glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're in the chat room. And I'm glad to be talking with Mr. Christopher Lockhart, producer and story editor at William Morris Endeavor. So, Christopher, uh, enough of that. Let's get back to to, uh, you and the movies. What's the difference now between, you know, a studio pick like that and... uh, in an indie movie, what what would you say are the? Well, I I think resources, of course, can be uh, can be the biggest difference. And um, of course, with a studio pick, uh, it seems like distribution is is fairly secure. With with an independent film, you might be making it long before you have distribution, which can create some issues up front, and then of course create bigger issues on the other end. Uh, uh, you know, some people are, are, would just prefer to make independent films outside of the studios. Uh, I'm okay with with doing a film under the auspices of a studio, that's for sure. But on the flip side, uh, as a creative entity, it's sure nice being able to make all the decisions, really make the final the final decisions, like uh, in the documentary. So yeah, I, I, I mean, and and I really want to get into the documentary. I, I just the question that I have is, is yes, there are resource differences, and and in some ways, in in narrative feature films, I mean, you're still it's, it's still answering, you know, usually to your investors. You may not have to answer creative questions, but I mean, you do have you, you know you do have some kind of answer to someone. All I guess all the decisions aren't aren't completely independent. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes. And However, though, I, I, I think when you're, when you're dealing with a studio, you're dealing with more creative entities. Uh, that, are, that are, yeah, more, more, more cooks in the kitchen. Exactly, right. Whereas opposed to an independent film, yeah, you still might have uh, a few more chiefs rather than Indians, but uh, ultimately, if you've got the investors, there are people that are providing money and not necessarily uh, creative advice. Do you think one is easier than the other in any event? I mean, I guess it depends on who you know, but I mean... I don't think that making movies is easy. It's, uh, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a long, hard process. It's, it's, it's hard emotionally, uh, it's hard physically, it's just, it's really hard work. And uh, yeah, you know, you're not... 
You're not pouring tar on a roof like today. You know, we're in triple digits out here in L.A. So, right. uh, you know, it's warm. But uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily back-breaking work per se, unless you're a grip. Right. Uh, and then it really is and can be. Uh, but, it's, but it really is it's, – it's draining work because you have to be very, very passionate about a project. Uh, in order to bring it to life and to sustain that kind of passion for such a long time and, and constantly trying to instill that passion in other people and motivate them, uh, that can really be draining. Well, someone said on the show, and it may have been you, and forgive me if it was, and I, and I just don't remember the source, but I mean, somebody said uh, recently, in, in my recollection at least, that you know, I mean, there are major stars who've got projects that they can't get made that they've been waiting for years and years, you know, to try and to try and get their dream project, uh, you know, on the, uh, you know, in the production and and on the screen. Um, so it's you know, it it's it's not an easy business, and and it doesn't mean that just because you are visibly successful that you have necessarily any easier job getting a project done. That is kind of on a on a per project basis, and just what happens happens. Absolutely. It, 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 I've seen it firsthand with um, you know very high-profile, well-known actors uh, that do have their pet projects and have not yet been successful in getting those off the ground for whatever reason. Uh, remember, the majority of all projects in this town are never greenlit and are never made. Uh, it, it's it's a, it's a that difficult. I feel blessed. That that my two projects that have been produced so far have had a theatrical release, and you know they're not Gone with the Wind, it's it's not Hamlet, it's not uh, Inception. But from my small place in the world, uh, I'm I'm delighted with that because I understand how how hard it is, and that most people will never get to see their projects on the big screen. Uh, which, by the way, if, uh, if, if that's not your intent, you know, a lot of people now are writing for the Internet uh, or you're writing for TV. But clearly, if you're trying to make a feature film and you want it released theatrically, uh, it's getting harder and harder and harder. Do you think um, – what about, what about filmmaking elsewhere? Now, there's those movies that go from Hollywood, say, to New Orleans or to Michigan or to, you know, I, I wish they'd come all to Wisconsin – um, but what about the movies that are being made independently elsewhere in Minnesota and Iowa and Texas? And I mean, there, there's no studio connection. They're independent films. They're, right. Do, right. Do you have any sense of, of I mean, the, the odds uh, of, of, you know, I, I couldn't even begin to calculate how many f feature films are made a year in this country, and we never hear of them. They're never released. Uh, they never even make it to DVD, uh, unless somebody is um, distributing their own DVD. But uh, So, yeah, I really don't even have a sense of what's really going on out there. But with the birth of DV and everybody has a camera and everybody's got, uh, you know, Final Cut, and uh, every, any, anybody now can make a movie. Anybody can make a movie now. Whether it's good or not is a completely different story. But sure. there's but there's a lot more there's a lot more filmmakers out there. And remember that there's all these film festivals, and so that gives a lot of people a potential way to exhibit their film. So they go out and they make their film, and maybe they make it for for five grand, and and then they try to get into film festivals, and maybe they do, maybe they don't. But um, you know that's become so prolific that a lot of people feel that that's that that's a way that they can get their film to audiences, uh, even if it never makes uh, you know the arc light. So uh, so there's just so much of that out there now, and and um, and you know something, there are people that spend no money making a film and they do it a terrific job and mm -hmm. um but 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 still it's uh it is crazy out there i get so many uh dvds and i get all sorts of query letters and so so i know that there's a lot of stuff going out there but i don't think i really have a clue as to how much wow do you have a sense again uh of whether or not for uh 
you know, these indie features from around the world, whether or not the, the, the distribution actually is changing, that, you know, festivals may in the future not be the route that they are, you know, that maybe more go directly to DVD and, and Best Buy and Walmart or that the uh, video on demand and television will become, you know, or iTunes or, or YouTube or something that there will be more... Yeah, I think that although although Toronto had some pretty good success this year, I think, I don't know, maybe like between seven or a dozen projects were sold, and I don't really know the backstory to all that. Sometimes those projects are actually sold long before they even get to the film festival, but they sort of keep it mum, and then, and, and, and then they release the information while they're at the film festival. But regardless of that, yeah, I think that we've seen that perhaps that model of trying to find a distributor at a film festival is not quite what it used to be. And, um, and so now we see all these other sort of models beginning to pop up, um, video on demand, for example. Uh, yeah, the problem, though, with video on demand, I think, is that is that it's great if your movie's Harry Potter or if it's or or if it's Inception, uh-huh. but if nobody's heard of your film, uh, so it goes out there to video on demand, but there's no demand for it. Right. So, Good point. Good point. Uh, yeah. So you know that so that becomes a little bit of a dilemma, also. So it would uh, my the least favorite word in the English language is the word behoove. I don't know why, but it grates me the wrong way. But it would behoove filmmakers then to take advantage of the whole social networking. Uh, you know, uh, John Reese has the concept, you know, producer of uh, marketing and distribution to take advantage of uh, the kind of. Um, efforts made in the early stages to, to gain an audience so that by the time it comes out, they've got a yeah. following. Yeah, yeah. I, I would recommend, and this is what I would do for the future, uh, it's certainly not what I've done in the past uh, because I'm still learning, uh, but in terms of social media, yeah, I, it's like the minute that you know, you're in pre-production, even though it could be three years until the film is released, uh, I, would, I would begin that campaign. I would start my Facebook page. Uh, I would start to uh, create a desire for people to be interested in the film, start some niche marketing, uh, whatever it is. Uh, and I'm, I'm no marketing expert, and I think a lot of producers aren't, especially in regards to this whole new social media revolution. Um, and there are obviously a lot of consultants now that are popping up, and um, you know where they can take your Facebook page from a uh, hundred fans to a million fans in just a couple of months' time. Wow. They they know how to do it, and um, there are there are strategies to it. We've all, for 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 my documentary, we only have I think it's twelve hundred, maybe it's like one thousand two hundred and fifty fans on Facebook. It's hard to even get people to click the, 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 the like button. It is. It is. Oh, I, my word. I mean, it's, it, amazing. It's, it's really, really hard. So uh, there are people out there that really know how to guide that process and get people to commit to just click on a like button. Right. So, um, but yeah, I definitely think that, that, it's, that it's a powerful way to go. I have a friend uh, who keeps, she keeps just jabbing me about Twitter. You've got to get on Twitter. You've got to get on Twitter. And she's a doll. She keeps Twittering uh, about uh, the documentary for me. But, uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't yet gotten into that. I'm like, ah, oh, it's just one more thing I have to do. But, yeah, <laughs> these are the things. These are the things that you have to do in order to sort of spread the word. But also I think what's really important early on is to know your audience, to know your audience and understand that that could branch out, but know your audience. So it's like for the documentary, we understood sort of early on that we predicted that our audience could be young people like teens in high school, um, a gay audience, and um, moms as well. And, and so, you know, that, that was sort of our vision of who our audience was. And now whether that has expanded since the film has been released, that's a different story. But, and so, so, once, so once we started to do our, um, our kind of niche marketing, those were the groups that, that we targeted. And kind of 
hitting the uh, the theater world, for example, and going onto message boards and just spreading the word and sharing the trailer and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and, and then, of course, all of that can just get bigger and bigger and bigger. But know your audience and, and start to find them very early in the process. Well, I've got to say that, uh, you know, for all those listening in and for those in the chat room, go ahead and click on uh, Most Valuable Player at Facebook and become a friend. It is tough. I mean, it's tough. I'm on Twitter a lot, and I, and I oftentimes feel like I'm on too much. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to promote my guests and get information out that I deem absolutely valuable to other people who may or may not, you know, yet know about us. And Twitter is this kind of funny thing where you have your friends – and then there's all these other people who don't follow you yet, and so it's all about getting followers. And it's 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 amazing, you know, how people can navigate. And some people, you know, have millions of followers because they're celebrities, and other people have hundreds of thousands of, of of followers, but they aren't anybody that you would recognize or anybody that you know. But somehow they've been able to navigate this system and and uh, collect followers. Uh, I always ask people here on the show to go ahead and retweet during the show while while you, when you make a point that. Uh, that they could go ahead and retweet it because that would go out to their friends or to people who might not have heard yet or to Facebook it or, you know, uh, you know, you know, to, to continue to help spread this. And whenever, whenever somebody retweets me, I make it a point to retweet them. You know, I think it should be reciprocal. But it's a lot of lot of work. It is. It, it is the whole social media thing, and, and and there's just so much of it that I don't understand yet. Well, I think Hillary Clinton was right. It takes a village. You know, I mean, it really does take a collective of people. You know, who you know, who working together can can human or, or man these operations to do, to do it twenty four seven and and to do it because for for one person to try and do it all, it is an amazing amount of effort. Uh, yeah, and also too, I think that that. Uh, producers need to consider uh, these elements in their budget early on and perhaps budgeting in advance for a person who will eventually come on to do this sort of stuff. Um, uh, you know, even even going the film festival circuit, that costs money. You know, probably the average entry fee is $75 for a film festival. And there are some people that, you know, will enter – a hundred film festivals, and if you get into all of them, and even if you went to ten or eleven of them, it's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you some money to travel. Some of the film festivals will, you know, offer you like a stipend or whatever the word is. But uh, but you know, for the most part, you're going to have to pay for your food. You're going to have to pay for your travel, perhaps, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all that stuff adds up, and, and I think, you know, we don't, we don't consider that on the other end. And so, especially independent filmmakers really need to think about what's going to happen on the other side and, and budget for that up front. Awesome. Say, I have uh, some questions in the chat room. I think I just want to take them kind of one after the other because they've been sitting there for a while and I haven't been able to get to them. And the first question was about the collector and the, and the individual was uh, DeBullis, a one from the chat room, asked, was it uh, was collector larger domestically or in Europe? Um, it was bigger here. Oh, really? That's interesting. Um, I, I don't know that there's a follow-up to that, but uh, do you have any idea maybe why? Um, uh, I don't, actually. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure as to how many screens it was released on overseas, and that could most certainly have made a difference. Um, you know, we were on about 1,300 screens here, and uh, overseas I don't know. But, um, yeah, I think just uh, – I think it's probably catching on pretty well over there uh, on DVD. Okay, cool. Uh, even though even we, 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 were, we were released theatrically in Great Britain in June, I believe, and then we hit some of the other European countries in July and August. Um, and uh, I know that the French and the Germans love it because uh, they're writing stuff – on our Facebook page. You know something? I actually don't speak those languages, so maybe they're not writing anything that's, that's good. <laughs> that's good. But, but, you know, I do see a lot of exclamation points. So, uh, wow. so I'm just interpreting it, that they're enjoying it. Um, wow. I just – the chat room is scrolling so fast, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get back to the question that I wanted to ask you. Um, so I may have to ask 
uh, it was FX guy asked a question. I, I think I can remember, but let me say, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. Um, uh, maybe dollar-wise, you know, it's important for something to do better in Europe because it's a, it could be a larger market. But uh, I am almost happier when something is a bigger domestic thing because if I'm working in my own neighborhood, I want my neighbors to know about it, you know, and, and yeah. to have some relief here. Um, well, you know I, something, I, too? I think, I think that in some ways the collector feels like those sort of uh, French horror thrillers like High Tension. Uh, and, and so it's possible that, that to them they've sort of seen this kind of film before, perhaps, where American audiences haven't quite uh, been introduced to the sort of uh, French influence in, uh, in you know, horror thrillers, um, uh, perhaps. But um, again, I know that, that we're gaining a lot a lot of popularity over there with with DVD. Clearly, if we didn't think that there was um, overseas potential, there wouldn't be. Uh, there probably wouldn't be a sequel happening. So, good point. Excellent point. Okay, now I'm going to try and ask the question that FX guy um, asked, um, and I think it went something like this: If um, a studio Oh my! I don't know that he worded it this way, but let's say a studio options a, a, a picture and it goes into turnaround. Um, is there a time frame in which you can get your movie back so that it's not indefinitely held in studio hands, so that you could pursue it elsewhere? And he was. Well, he was I think can, he specifically asked about like 20th Century or MGM large studios. Yeah. You can you you can get it back at any time. The problem is is that when it's in turnaround, it is accruing fees. There's like interest fees, you know, for lack of a better word, and and so and so it can become more expensive. Clearly, in order to let's say pull a project out of one studio and and bring it elsewhere, or to at least get it back, you have to pay back the studio all the money that they invested into that project. So let's say that they paid a writer $300,000 to write the script. You're going to need to give them back that money. Now, you know, deals can be worked out, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but for the most part, uh, I think that's often why films don't come out of turnaround. Now, I, I, may have pre- I may have added information to that question. He did not specifically use the phrase turnaround. I did. He may, may be he meant only if a film had been optioned. Well, an option is all based on an option is all based on a contract. So uh, contractually, somebody may have the option for a year, and then when that year is up, they they will have perhaps the 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 first go at it again, meaning that they have the right before anybody to option it a second time. But once that option is over, and if they choose not to pick that option up again, that project is yours. So it reverts back at the at that point. Okay. Exactly. Um, now, Vampire Mob, I think, asked whether you felt, and I think we kind of discussed this, but whether you felt that uh, at this day and age, um, whether or not the festival route was a way to to go. Uh, I think... I, I think the festival route is is uh, if if anything is a way to go in 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 order to get people to see your film. Ultimately, you make a film for people to see it. Uh, now, understand that just because your movie gets into a festival doesn't mean that anybody's going to see it. But regardless, uh, you certainly have an opportunity. Uh, for the film to be exhibited, and then you can try to draw in an audience. And uh, I think that's that's the most realistic uh, goal, uh, because the majority of film festivals, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. The majority of film festivals do not attract the buyers, uh, and they do not attract the press. There's, in my opinion, there are there are three reasons why you go to a film festival. You want to go to a film festival because you want there to be buyers present. You expect there to be press because press is very important, uh, and you want an audience. And those are the three elements. And, 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 and so not all film festivals can give you all three of those elements. In fact, some, some film festivals may not be able to give you any of those elements because you might, they might schedule your film on a Tuesday afternoon at like 1.30 and as opposed to getting a Saturday night slot at 8 o'clock in the evening. So, uh, so you know, so there's, there's, no, there's no guarantees. 
but not all film festivals are Sundance and and Toronto. You know, they have this sort of first tier film festivals and then the second tier film festivals. And I, I'm I'm no expert on this topic, but uh, you know, but clearly you want to at least strive for a couple of those higher tiered film festivals because that's where the buyers are going to be. And, and it's important, I think, to do your research on film festivals as well. Uh, look for ones that might be more likely to accept a film like yours. Uh, look at the sort of press that they get. Look at the sort of audiences that they get. Uh, and it's easy to see if if films at that film festival were reviewed by, for instance, you know, the the, the New York Times, or if they got a review in in, in Variety or Hollywood Reporter, uh, you know, you can kind of just do that research pretty easily on the internet. But I think those are you know those are the goals of a film festival. It's 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 uh, it would be great if if a person threw their film into a festival and it got picked up by by a distributor. But the odds of that happening are slim to none. So at the very least, it's a way to, to, to spread the word of of your film. And in the chat room, we've got a lot of, you know, a flurry of kind of conversation about, you know, festival horror stories, you know, the fees that they paid or the reviews that they got or misinformation printed or... Yeah, oh, like yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, it's like you have to deal with the fact that they may not be able to exhibit your film the way you want it to be exhibited. Uh, you know, maybe they can only screen it in standard def when you shot in HD. It might be shown out in the park where the acoustics are not uh, ideal uh, a lot of times film festivals are not are not giving you um, any sort of um, uh, any sort of uh, you know, like a letter or something like if you have applied to the film festival you don't even get a rejection letter uh, right so yeah you know so so yeah so there's a zillion horror stories but you know something that's no different here in hollywood either so it's just sort of par for the course you just have to roll with the punches and um but i still think that it's a great opportunity to share your film with audiences you didn't make a home movie you want you want the world to to see your movie and even if it's a small part of the world in some small town somewhere it's still a great opportunity well, it, it is amazing, and, and I guess the the advice often given is you just can't take it personally. You know, it, it you know you you may take it as feedback if if you enter hundred festivals and hundred festivals say no, uh, maybe that's uh, important feedback that isn't actually being voiced, but it's a sign that maybe you have to do something differently the next time. Or maybe, but you know something. Maybe hundred festivals are wrong. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, that's, that's I, I, I think it's you know, I have I I have spoken to festival programmers who have said to me, I can't tell you how many times I have to call a filmmaker and, 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 and pass on his film despite the fact that I loved it. Oh, yeah. Because there are many reasons why films are programmed in a film festival. And, and uh, so it, it's just, you can't, you can't take this stuff personally. It's just for... For whatever reason, you just you just keep rolling with the punches. Yes, I do agree that if that if a hundred film festivals turn you down, then there's a possibility that your film may not be all that good. Um, but on the flip side, right. if if you're if if you're getting some yeses and 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 some noes, it just just could be a lot of factors. For instance, our documentary is sort of. It's sort of uh, counter-programming because it's it's not a gloom and doom doc, and and that's what's really popular right now. You know, documentaries about global issues, documentaries, right. uh, for instance, Waiting for Superman, which is a film that talks about what's wrong with our public education system, did quite well over the weekend. It's a documentary by Davis Guggenheim. Um, our documentary is really sort of the anti waiting for Superman because it really shows you what's what's right about our public schools, but. Uh, who, but you know who wants to see that? You know, you know we want to see the other thing, and, and so you know, so so that's been a little bit of a challenge for us as well, just in terms of offering up a documentary that 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 has been called the feel good documentary of the year, 
And not everybody wants to feel good when they go to documentaries because because that's because that's sort of become part of the genre. You know, it's like right, it's, right. Yeah, yeah, that's become part of the genre. Is that you know, docs are supposed to be gloom and doom. Uh, that's that's sort of the expectation. You know, and um, and so if your film isn't that then perhaps you're not meeting the requirements of what a documentary is supposed to be. Uh, you know, and, and, and especially now, just in terms of what the tenor of that, of, of that world is. You know, our film is much more in, in the vein of something like Spellbound, which came out, you know, I don't know, maybe eight years ago or something about the National Spelling Bee. So, uh, you know, it, it has much more of that, that feeling to it. Um, as opposed to things about an inconvenient truth or or, um, or waiting for Superman. So, well, you, you just—I mean—you made an excellent point, and I guess I had never ever consciously appreciated it up until today. And that is that you're right. Documentaries have had this turn where, if it isn't some overriding social problem or some ill or some woe, uh, you really don't—you really don't pay much attention to it. Um, yeah, because. Uh, yeah, and, and, and again, that seems like it's become part of the genre. It's it's right. it's almost like a genre requirement in some respects. And and believe me, there are plenty of programmers out there that when they are programming a film festival and they see, wow, all of our docs are gloom and doom, and we want to do a little bit of counter programming, then they, you know, and then they look for that. And, you know, so we're doing three film festivals this fall. Uh, you know, the sort of the, the film festival circuit sort of ends in, in uh, you know, it, it kind of breaks for the holidays and then it starts up again uh, in January. But uh, so, you know, so we're going to be really busy uh, at, uh, at Mill Valley and the Chicago International Children's Film Festival and the St. Louis International Film Festival. Uh, you know, but... Um, but yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. So it's it's been a little bit of a um, a little bit of a climb for us in that respect. Well, let me let me do this. We um, we only have maybe five or six minutes left, and I want to talk about your documentary. So we're going to have to have you back before it goes to the 10th of October. With the uh, it's going to be at the Mill Valley. I mean, Mill. Mill Valley Film Festival. It's um, it's right outside San Francisco. They're uh, they're honoring Annette Bening and uh, Edward Norton this year, and I believe they I believe the opening night film is um, is the new Colin Firth film, but of which the title I cannot think of about about the King of England with the speech impediment. Oh, okay. I, I don't know the name either, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think that's going to be a big film. I think you're going to see that coming around uh, Oscar time. Okay, great. And then after that, you said Chicago and in St. Louis. Is am I? I that, don't want to misspeak. That's correct. Yeah. So we're in. So we're. So we're. We are at Mill Valley on the 15th. Um, I should say the 10th of, of, of October and the 15th of October, and then uh, in Mill Valley. On a uh, pardon me, then in Chicago on a Saturday, I think it's the uh, I don't know, I think it's the twenty, maybe it's the twenty fifth, it's the twenty third or the twenty fifth. It's a Saturday it's the night. Twenty third, that's a Saturday, yeah. Saturday, yeah. And then um, in St. Louis, we're still waiting for our dates there, and I think that's uh, maybe, maybe like the first or second week of, of November. Well, and then I'm, we take a little break. I'm putting the twenty third of October into my calendar so that I get over to Chicago for that. So All right. It's at the uh Hoover Leppin Theater. I I don't know. I don't know where it is. <laughs> I'll get those details from you at some point if you've got them. Right. Uh but that's that's awesome. And Leppin. you can get all of this information on our website, most valuable players movie. Most valuable players plural, most valuable players dot com. So all that information is on there. And plus we have uh, video of, uh, I should say, you know, unused footage on there and uh, various links, and you can meet some of the filmmakers involved and uh, read some reviews. Be uh, I'm going, I'm definitely going to Mill Valley. Uh, uh -huh. I don't know if I'm going to the others yet. Because I know the stuff that I need to take care of here. But yeah, no, I would love to, but uh, I don't know. I don't, Chicago might be awfully cold. 
you know, especially today, you know, it's like 105 degrees. I don't know it, would, it would be by contrast today, but uh, hopefully at that time we're still enjoying a kind of an Indian summer in Chicago, so uh, usually much warmer than it is up here, and, and uh, up here is pleasant. But at any rate, um, Christopher, you, you have been fantastic, and you have a friends page on Facebook. Let's be sure to mention that, Most Valuable Players on on um, on Facebook. That's I, right. We've got 1,252 friends. Uh, uh, I think I just checked. So please add your add your faces to our page. And uh, uh, as I said last time, quite a few of the listeners have actually jumped on and they've left me a note uh, on the Facebook page, and I really appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Well, let's see if we can't double that. We should get all of our all of our listeners out. Uh, you know. Um, uh, hitting up their friends and their contacts and and uh, and saying, hey, check this out. Uh, yeah, you know, they they can share our trailer from the website if they want to. Would be great. Well, that's fantastic. All right, so we we know I I know that we have to have you back before the tenth of October. So you and I are going to make sure that that happens, uh, if that's all right with you. And then we're going to spend that whole hour talking about documentary film and about most valuable players. All right. Because I want to do that, and we, we, you give so much information and so much value. I mean, the people in the chat room are, are going, this is great, and thank you so much, and, and uh, they're loving the information, but I do want to be able to focus on, on uh, the documentary and what it's like to produce it and make it and, and uh, what that you know, it's is. A like. it's, a very, it's a very, very popular form right now, and, and in fact, I think you see a lot, a lot of, a lot of young filmmakers m- making documentaries because um, you can just sort of uh, you know point and shoot and then and then cut later. Whether that works or not is a different story, but it's certainly pretty popular. And of course, now you see so many uh, feature film directors that uh, have sort of crossed over and and will dabble in documentary filmmaking. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a, um, a worthy subject. In the um, in the last few seconds that we have remaining, how how long did it take you to make the documentary? How long? Uh, roughly work? roughly from uh, from from inception to release, three years. Wow, wow. So uh, yeah, I mean that is the difference, though. Too. I mean, it can take a long time for a feature film to get made, but. Uh, I, you know, a documentary has that kind of uh, we got to go shoot now. Something, <laughs> thing, yeah. uh, you know, assemble our crew and let's go do this because it's happening. Whereas, you know, that's right. In the, in the that's right. The future, Christopher, you have been uh, again uh, just a, a, a wealth of fabulous information. Uh, must have information. I, I implore. I ask. I beg. I, con- I, I am going to cajole. I am. <laughs> my listeners and the people in the chat room to go ahead and spread this far and wide and spread Most Valuable Player far and wide and spread Rex Likes Movie far and wide by tweeting about it when they get off here by leaving comments on the comment page right there where they're listening live or as a podcast um, because that's the thing that the listener can do to, re- to return. Uh, and, and nobody's looking for a thank you, but, the, but to be able to return the uh, – the gesture for all this free information that that my guests provide. Uh, go ahead, retweet, Facebook, email, phone call, uh, talk to people in person, spread the word. Uh, we really appreciate it when you do. Christopher, you have been absolutely marvelous. Again, thank you so much. Have a great week. I'll talk to you in just a few, and uh, and then um, we'll take it from there. All right. So, thank, uh, you. thank you, sir. Bye bye. Uh, that was Mr. Christopher Lockhart. Uh, the the uh, word in the chat room is fabulous, and uh, I have to absolutely agree. And I am so oh, somebody just stumbled on me on StumbleUpon. Well, yeah, you know, I you know I can't do it all myself. I don't I don't subscribe to all these podcast places. I don't put this up everywhere. You know, I hit Twitter, I hit Facebook, and maybe MySpace. That's what I do. If you can help me out with that, man, thanks so much. That would be great. You want to go spread this and, and link it up elsewhere. I always encourage people. I've always said you can you can post these links anywhere, good taste prevailing, uh, and spread the word. So I, I appreciate that very much internationally. Um, you, but you guys in the chat room, you guys who are my listeners and friends and fans, the people I hear from through email or phone calls or in person, I, I love you. You rock. You are so great. And uh you know, without you, the show 
would be nothing. I mean, there'd be nobody listening. So thank you so much, and have a marvelous, marvelous day. Next up, next up, my very next interview is Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson, the casting directors. Uh, they've been doing it for 30 years. I was a young actor. I used to go into Jane's office back in the Hollywood days. Uh, uh, I don't know uh, she, <laughs> whether we'll mention that or not, but uh, but uh, you got to hear from Jane and and Janet, because they're going to talk to you about what it takes to make it in Hollywood, and it's it's maybe easier than you think and not as easy as you think. There's a whole kind of hierarchy that happens, and, and we'll talk to them about revealing what goes on. Uh, so that's the next show, and then Mitch Apley is coming up, and then Douglas Day Stewart. That'll round out the rest of this week. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Join the uh, Rex Hikes Friends page at Facebook. That's another page, but Mitch Apley's, uh, I'm sorry, go to Christopher Lockhart's um, Most Valuable Player and uh, and and spread that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Rex Sykes Movie BT, R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S-M-O-V-I-E-B-T. Um, I'd like to double all of my listeners and followers on Twitter. And uh, everybody... Have a fabulous day. I'm just rambling here. Make your movies. Complete your projects. Until we meet the next time, remember, all these are archived. All these are available as podcasts. Uh, you can point your friends and connections to those and uh, to RexSex.com. That is a wrap.